Mark chapter 10. So starting together at verse 1. This is God's words. And he left there, it's Jesus, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What does Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we're coming to this section in our study. We're walking through the Gospel of Mark, really asking ourselves, what is, it, what is, what is Jesus all about and what does it mean to follow him? Um, and so, this is the next section in that. Um, and uh, we've come to this uh, kind of controversial bit, I suppose, on, on the subject of, of marriage, sex and marriage. Um, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today. If this is your first time here at Foundation Church, don't worry, we don't always talk like this, all right? It's just this is the next bit in the Bible, and it's my job uh, as, as, as your pastor and as God's uh, servant is just to go through it and say what he says. So that's what we're going to do. Um, so what we're going to see today, this morning, are, you know, we're going to consider these, these, these verses under four headings. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at the controversy of sex and marriage. Second, the vision of sex and marriage. Thirdly, the reality of sex and marriage. And fourthly and finally, the gospel of sex and marriage. These are not words that are often put together. I understand that. But, you know, hopefully it will become clear as we go through. So first of all, then, the controversy uh, with sex and marriage. Uh, and as we see in the, you know, the first few verses we read together, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And we saw that, you know, last week and the week before uh, Jesus was up a mountain. He sort of revealed his glory to uh, a few of his disciples. God spoke audibly and said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And, and so this sort of high point, I suppose, in the middle of the, the gospel of Mark. And then he's, Jesus is coming down the hill. He's coming down towards Jerusalem. And we all know, and the readers of Mark all know, that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, to, to hang on a cross and die for his people. And so that's in the background. That casts a shadow over what we're, what we're learning about today. And so as, as Jesus sort of gets closer to the cross, um, his teaching on discipleship intensifies, all right? Because he's got moments left. He's got weeks or maybe just even days left at this, at this stage. And, and uh, you know, he has to be real clear and real direct with what it means to follow me. And we've seen that already. This isn't the first time he's picked this up. But he gets to this specific area, contentious issue, um, but a big issue of, of sex and marriage and what that means for us. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of a flashpoint for Jesus. It's a flashpoint, a clash, I suppose, between him and, and, and uh, those who want to get him, you know, those who want to destroy him, trash him, whatever they want to do. Um, and, and, and so we see here this controversy of sex and marriage. And it's the same today, right? Um, it's a flashpoint. Uh, between the church and the world, we could say. Um, These sort of two um, things collide. And, um, and so we're going to think carefully about what Jesus teaches. 
So in verse 2, um, just to set the scene, uh, the Pharisees uh, are these religious sort of, uh, you know, very religious people. Um, they, they try so, so hard to obey God by obeying every law and every tradition and everything around that. And, and they, they, they sort of uh, get a reputation in the Gospels for sort of walking around and looking at other people who don't follow the law as well as they do. All right? They kind of look down, they're arrogant, uh, that kind of thing. I'm sure there's one or two nice Pharisees, but in general, that's the, that's the reputation they have. Right? And it says here, um, they asked him a question in order to test him. Right, so they weren't asking a question because they didn't know the answer or they were seeking knowledge. That's not what they wanted. They wanted to test Jesus, right, to, to trap him, to try and undermine his, his teaching and make him appear to be a fool or make him appear to be someone who hates the, the word of God or something like that. You know, discredit him somehow. And so they present to him this controversial conundrum. And they say to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? All right, it's kind of a test case to see whether Jesus passes the test or not. The background uh, to this question is, yes, indeed, it is lawful. Um, You you wouldn't find many people in Jesus' day who would argue against the fact that it's lawful. Everybody held in some way or other that divorce is lawful. So so more likely, the question is, on what grounds? What what are the the, the reasons that that someone can divorce uh, his his or her uh, spouse? Um, one of the insights that we get into the current sort of uh, understanding of divorce and marriage in the time of Jesus is through a collection of writings called the Mishnah. And that just sort of collated a lot of the combined wisdom of the rabbis around the time of Jesus. And the rabbis seem to think of divorce in two schools of thought. You had the conservative wing, I suppose, that said, look, you can only get divorced if there's some sort of indecency or immorality, all right? If someone goes off and has adultery or something like that, that's the reason why you can get divorced. There's another school of thought, which is the more predominant one, um, which, which basically said, yes, there's that, but, but if, you, if there's anything you don't like about your wife, you know, in general terms, you can feel free to divorce her. So actually, in the Mishnah, uh, reasons for divorce considered to be legitimate are if she's poor at cooking or if you find another woman who is more attractive than her. These are grounds for divorce, according to the liberal school of the rabbis. And as I mentioned, it's this liberal view that was generally predominant in the society that Jesus uh, was operating in. Um, so it's really with that in mind that they come and ask him, is it, is it lawful? Can, can we do this? And so Jesus responds, you can see in verse 3, what did Moses command you? Uh, you know, let's get back to the word of God, right? Let's listen to the law. What does it say? The Old Testament and all that. Uh, and so they respond as they do, because they've been to Sunday school. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And that's the stock answer they give him. And so Jesus responds then in verse 5. And he says, paraphrased, this is so messed up. Uh, He says, this is because of your hardness of heart that he, that is Moses, wrote this commandment. All right? Uh, Jesus is saying, look, this is a, a concession. All right? Moses put this concession into the law. He allowed this divorce to take place because of your mess, because of your hardness of heart. That's, that's why. The point with this, says Jesus, was to minimize fallout. Right? It's to restrict damage. It was to offer some level of dignity to the divorced parties and some sort of legal protection. That's why it's there. But Jesus says, look, you've, you, you Pharisees have taken this allowance that, that was put in and you've turned it into some sort of command or some sort of permission. Um, you, 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 this is messed up. 
says Jesus. You know, you're going with the letter of the law, but you've completely missed the spirit of the law. That's the gist of this debate that's going on here in these verses. And today, like, of course, we all know this, many of us personally, that divorce is a, is a sad fact of modern life. Right? There's not one person in this room who hasn't been affected in some way, either through friends or family, or maybe you even personally have gone through uh, divorce. It is an incredibly sad fact of life. And, and uh, unfortunately, the, the statistics show that there's not a lot of difference between what happens in the church and what happens in those outside the church. You know, like every, everybody is affected. And, uh, you know, I think probably it's fair to say over in particularly my lifetime, um, it, it, it's become easier and easier to be divorced, you know, due to legislation and, and laws and things. Um, in fact, we have this concept now called a no-fault divorce. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, but it, the idea is that you don't have to sort of find something wrong or some offense in the other person. You can just agree to disagree, the pair of you, and say, you know what, I think we've tried our best. Uh, there's no fault either side. Let's just dissolve the whole thing. Um, celebrities are worst at this. Um, I don't know if, who's heard of Jeff Bezos. Do you know who Jeff Bezos is? Yeah, who's Jeff Bezos? Right, right. He's the he's the richest man in the world, or he was at some at one point. Anyway, uh, head of Amazon. He started the, on, the massive online um, retail Amazon, and uh, he and his wife were married for 25 years. Him and Mackenzie uh, Bezos. And in 2019, after 25 years of marriage, they decide to to get divorced. And this is a statement that they that they put out. I shouldn't laugh because it's really sad. But anyway, um, this is what they said. It's one-liner. After a long period of loving exploration and trial separation, we've, de we've decided to divorce and continue our shared lives as friends. It, it just sounds so lovely, doesn't it, the way they put it? It just sounds so nice. You know, we've just decided, we've tried our best, and, uh, you know, we're carrying on our shared lives as friends. But, but really, this sort of sentiment covers up the immense hurt and pain uh, the divorce brings. It just does. It just does. Uh, I took a bit of time to, to look at some boring statistics. Um, and uh, when you look at the UK data over the last 10 years, we can see that marriage itself is at an all-time low. It has never been lower uh, before records began, since records began. Uh, divorce rates are also down. Um, but it's thought that that's because less people are getting married in the first place. So there's less people to get divorced, right? Um, and even, even civil partnerships here in Northern Ireland are pretty static, and 10% of those every year end up dissolving. So taken together, what, what are we saying? What does all this, this mean? Well, it shows that as a society, as a nation, um, we're, we're, we're sort of less willing to commit, aren't we, across the board. Uh, we prefer flexibility. We prefer to keep our options open uh, rather than tie ourselves down. You know, when I, when I sign up for a, a subscription like Now TV or something, or get, I get coffee beans through the post, you know, um, uh, quite often the, the contract will say to me, you can cancel any time. I'm like, awesome. That's the kind of contract I want, right? It's not really a contract at all, is it? You just sort of agree to start going and stop any time you want. And, and, and when it comes to online TV or coffee, it's not a bad thing. Um, but we've kind of got to that place now when, when it comes to marriage where we can just cancel at any time. So it sets up the question, does it not? What, what is the point? You know, what's, what's marriage for? What, what is the need for marriage? Is there a need even? Can we just dispense with it altogether? So we can see here, can't we, 
as today, it's a very controversial topic. And it was in Jesus' time. But secondly, then, well, Jesus then sort of shows us uh, what we could describe as the vision for sex and marriage, right? Let's get the big picture sorted, and then we'll, we'll, we'll figure out the details later. And so he, he, he takes us through the big picture in verses 6 through 9. And, uh, you know, it's got to be said, Jesus draws very clear lines um, around all of this. Uh, so there's no doubt in, in what Jesus believes about sex and marriage. And so we have here, uh, you know, what we can describe as God's vision for sex and marriage. And Jesus, in verse 6, takes us way back to the beginning of creation. All right? And he's referring to the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the, in the Bible. And it describes the creation um, of life and heaven and earth and all the rest of it. And, and, and Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, you know, woven into our humanness, woven into what it means uh, to make us people, uh, it says, God made us male and female. It says there in verse 6. God made us people male and female. Clearly defined. All right? I know that today our society in general, we're getting more and more confused about even what that means, to be male or female. But going back to the beginning, God made people male and female. And then he says in verse 7, look, there's, there's, a, there's a pattern here. All right? uh, people, men and women, you know, a man, it says in verse 7, shall leave his father and mother, leave his parents, and hold fast to his wife. Um, join, join with her. And, and then he goes on to say, or he's quoting here from Genesis, uh, the two shall become one flesh. All right? So man and wife together, one flesh. And he repeats that again in the second half of verse 8. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. United together. And then he concludes in verse 9, therefore, he says, verse 9, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And if you've ever been to a wedding, you'll often hear that word spoken by the, the minister or the vicar towards the end of the, the marriage ceremony. You know, let what, you know, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Effectively, what Jesus is saying here is that God has created sex and marriage, so stop messing about with it. Stop destroying it. Of course, what Jesus is saying here is really miles away from what the Pharisees wanted to hear, because they were sort of uh, quite keen on the idea of divorce being able to be dissolved at will, and, and that's something that we want to embrace too in our own society. But Jesus is saying here that sex and marriage are invested with a huge power, this huge potential. Um, and and uh, to the first people back in Genesis, again, when God created the man and the woman and the Garden of Eden, uh, he said, look, I've made you in my image. You know, I've made you in my likeness. You're, you're my representatives to the world, to, to, to rule on my behalf, to, to build my kingdom on earth. And you do that at this stage in the game through sex and marriage. You build my kingdom in that way. How does this work out? How does this work out um, in, in general terms? You know, God, when he, when he created everything that is and everything um, that we can see and, and everything we can't see, God said to people, I want you to enjoy what I've made for you because it reflects me. And when you engage with it and when you love it and when you embrace it, then you're, 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 it's, it's a way of worship. You're, you're enjoying what I've given you, right? It's a gift. And, and like every gift, we wanna, we, I want you to take it up, says God. I want you to embrace it. I want you to enjoy it. 
and across the board, every time God gives us a gift, we're allowed to take it up and use it. And when we do that, there is growth in the kingdom of God. It's not a static thing. There's growth. And as I said, that's across the board. So whether it's the gift of work, we're working for the glory of God, or the gift of family, you know, or, the, or the gift of community, loving community, the gift of worship, the gift of food and drink, the gift of exploring and learning and discovering. All these things are gifts that God has wired into the very fabric of creation. And when we take these gifts and when we, when we, when we cultivate and when we uh, use them, the kingdom of God grows. And of course, sex stands alongside these gifts that God gives us. And as with every gift, the more we use it, the more we are deepened, the more we're developed, and the more we multiply. Obviously, one of the functions uh, of sex is offspring, right? It's, 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 it's babies, you know. It's, it's, it's new human beings, also in the image of God, also with this mandate to build the kingdom. And so this is the vision of God for sex and marriage. Sex and marriage expresses it strengthens one of the fundamental building blocks of the kingdom of God. Not the only one. It's one of the fundamental ones. And, you know, we hear this kind of talk in very few places. Maybe this is completely new to you. Maybe it sounds completely old-fashioned or, or, or out, of, out of the ark or something like that. Um, we very rarely hear any of this kind of talk out in the world, for sure. You wouldn't hear it in the school or in the university. Um, it's becoming less and less uh, talked about in church circles as well. Some will just choose to jump over it because it's contentious and it's difficult. Some will just choose to deny altogether. Um, but what I'm, what I'm saying here and what Jesus is saying here is nothing new. Um, what we could describe this vision as, you know, of sex and marriage, is the basic sexual ethic of Judeo-Christian thought which, which stems back well over 5,000 years. So I'm not saying anything new uh, that a first century Jew in Palestine would not have believed or, or uh, you know, many generations before that. This is standard. This is ancient sexual ethics. And yet today, particularly for us in the West, there's a, there's a rejection of marriage, as we've been thinking. There's even a re- redefining of sexuality and gender. But all this on the grand scheme of things is, a, is an innovation. Right? What we're talking about here um, is Um, how it was from the beginning, according to Jesus. But that's his vision. That's his vision for sex and marriage. But as, as wonderful as that vision is and as helpful as that can be to start to understand what we're talking about here and what we're reading, um, that's not the reality, is it? Uh, For for many of us, in fact, most of us, it's not the reality at all. Um, So we're going to think now about the reality of, of sex and marriage, and, and what I've just said to you and what we've been reading, the words of Jesus himself, is just very odd to many people today. Um, many people will consider that incredibly restrictive, uh, old-fashioned. Many people will think this is really actually dangerous, this kind of thing. Um, and so let's just um, think, you know... I, I, I think uh, modern uh, understanding of sex and marriage basically divides into two opinions, right? It's really simplified. Um, but, but out there, out, say out there, outside the church in general, um, this is generally how people understand sex and marriage. First position is this. Um, and as I say, it's very basic, right? It's just to help us sort of uh, 
get together here on the same page. The first position is this. It's just sex. It's just sex. Um, it's a basic bodily desire. It's an appetite just like anything else. So actually, sex means nothing outside of itself, right? Just like sleeping or eating or drinking or mowing the lawn, sex is an ordinary bodily function. It's something we just do. That's what we are as human beings. It's nothing more. And therefore, because of that, because it's just sex and no more, uh, we are free, uh, by this view, to express sex or sexuality in any way with any person um, because it's just sex. And it's just as inconsequential as getting a haircut. Right? You can go anywhere and, and choose any style you want. And that's, that's, how, that's how it's viewed. So that's, that's, one, that's one view. And it's kind of like the, you know, the polar, polar, polarized view. The second view, then, is that you know, just sex. And, and, and the second view is that everything is sex. Everything is sexuality. Um, and, and what I mean is this. Uh, many people will hold that the most basic and the most fundamental thing about a person is their sexual identity. It's their sexual preferences, it's their expression. So, so we, we, we think in terms of whether someone's gay or straight, you know, transgender or queer. All of these things define who we are in this way of thinking. It is fundamental to one's identity. Okay? It's, sex isn't just something you do, it's something that you are. It describes the very core part of your being. So we can see these two sort of uh, you know, ends of the spectrum. I understand that it's, it's a lot more complicated than that, but just for the sake of argument, that's, that's where we stand. Neither position, though, I would say to you, neither position can give a really good account of the power of sex, and especially the destructive power of sex. And what I mean by that is this. If people say, if we say it's just sex, then why is it that we experience hurt when a partner leaves us in preference for someone else. If it's, if it's just sex, then why does it cause so much damage when it goes wrong? Right? If it's just sex, then why do careers and, and lives and families and empires fall apart? Because if it's just sex, then none of that should happen. To use a very severe case of this, maybe you've heard of the name Harvey Weinstein. Um, He's, he, he is, was anyway, a, a talented and brilliant movie producer, producing some of the greatest films of the last 20 years or so in Hollywood. And when he was uh, apparently at the peak of his powers and his influence and his, his empire, I suppose, his film empire grew, um, certain allegations started coming out about his conduct towards women. Um, allegations that he'd been praying for many years uh, on young actresses and young employees seeking uh, sex from them. And seemingly overnight, well, it wasn't overnight, but very quickly, he went from being this movie mogul, you know, captain of this huge empire, to tumbling apart. And now he's a convicted criminal serving time in jail. His company collapsed. His work is in disrepute. His empire fell apart. And Harvey Weinstein could have just said, it was just sex. But we know, we know that's not true. Because what he did caused severe damage. There's great power in what he did. Destructive power. The other view, let's deal with that. The other view um, 
the, you know, the one that says sexuality is so fun fundamental to our identity, if that is the case, then why are we as a society so upset when sex is used to control or exploit or oppress a person? Right, we, we partner here um, at Foundation Church with International Justice Mission, which is the largest anti-slavery organization in the world. Um, and, and they work in, in a number of countries uh, with the current legal system in that country to bring justice for the poor uh, and for the oppressed. And particularly um, uh, in the Philippines, they work tackling this, what they call cyber sex abuse, cyber sex trafficking. And they put out a statistic just the other day on social media. It says that the United Kingdom is the third highest user of child exploitative images in the world. That's, that's, that's your country. That's, that's our country. Does that not make your blood boil slightly when you hear things like that? We know, don't we, that if someone is using sex to control or exploit others, that is a terrible thing. But in that view that sex is so fundamental to our identity, if someone is only expressing what is key to them, what is fundamental to them, then how can the rest of us say it is wrong? You know, to use the words of Lady Gaga, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. Who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? It's clear, isn't it, that so much damage can be done from misunderstanding the purpose and the power of sex and maybe, maybe you've been hurt by somebody or some situation in the past. Maybe you yourself have hurt someone. And, and if you have, and even if you know people that have, people you care for, you'll understand that, that, that sex can wound deeply because it's great, great power, destructive power. Maybe you've experienced some of that destructive power yourself. It has far-reaching consequences, does it not? So we've seen the um, controversy of sex and marriage. Uh, we've seen the vision that God gives us from the beginning of creation about sex and marriage. Now we've just been thinking about the reality of sex and marriage. It doesn't stack up to what Jesus is saying here. So finally then, let's come to the gospel of sex and marriage. Where do we go from here? Later on, actually, in this account, Jesus um, was cornered again about more questions about marriage and sex. Seems to be a pretty popular topic of his day, right? Just like it is for us today. It's actually Mark 12. You can read it later if you want. Um, but a whole another bunch of leaders came to Jesus, again with a question to trap him, to test him, to make him say something stupid, you know, that he'll later go on and regret. They didn't succeed, by the way, but they came up with this ridiculous story. They said to Jesus, right, here's, here's one for you. Um, there was a woman, and it's hypothetical, this story, right? There was a woman who, who married a guy, and um, he died. They didn't, didn't have any children. So in Jewish law, she'd have to marry his brother. And so she marries him. He dies. They didn't have any children. And so she marries a third brother. He dies, and there's no children. Seven marriages later, they all die. You know, this is a hypothetical story and still no children. Um, so, Jesus, here's the thing. When they all get to heaven, who's married to this woman? Which of the seven? And Jesus, of course, saw this for what it was. He saw this as a trap. It's a stupid story, but 
He saw it as a trap. And do you know what Jesus' response was? None of them. None of them will be married to her in heaven. Because there's Jesus in heaven, there's no marriage. There's no giving and receiving marriage. What Jesus is saying is that marriage and sex is temporary. It's, 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 it's for this life. It's not for the next life. But if this is correct, and if Jesus is, is right on that, let's give him the benefit of the doubt for a second, shall we? Then why is marriage and sex emphasized so strongly in the Bible? Why, why does the Bible make such a big deal? If it's just for this life and it doesn't you know, knock on to the next life, why uh, such a big deal? Well, the Apostle Paul, uh, later on uh, in Scripture, in the, the letter of Ephesians, wrote a letter to a church describing how men and women, husbands and wives, should react and interact with one another in marriage, right? And uh, he uses this, I've got it up on the screen here, he uses a phrase. Therefore, he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you recognize the phrase? It's just come out from... Mark chapter 10, right? It's the same verse that Jesus quotes from Genesis. But he goes on. This is a profound mystery, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Jesus is saying, marriage is temporary, and Paul is saying, marriage just points to a greater relationship between Christ and the church. Sex and marriage uh, perform a, a temporary function, but they point beyond themselves to something vastly more wonderful, vastly more important, vastly more eternal, this relationship between Jesus and his bride, which is the church. That's what marriage and sex are ultimately all about. Jesus loved his wife, the church. He gave himself for her. He came to her to love her and care for her and bless her and provide for her. And yet she, that is we, the church, his people, we wandered away. We wandered away from the love of Jesus. We, we, we tried to find love and acceptance in the arms of other lovers. That's what we've done, all of us. And we have found to our own, own experience and our own expense that that has never fulfilled the needs, that has never satisfied the desires, that has never given us what we thought it would give us. It's only left us hurt and somewhat empty. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. Because Jesus came for her. Right? He came for you. He came to win you back by his love. He, he came to woo his church. In fact, Jesus became naked and vulnerable for his wife, the church, the moment that he went to the cross. And in this supreme act of, of love, he, he, he gave himself to her by laying his life down for her. And, and then as the good news goes on, he, he rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven, and one day he shall return. We've just been confessing that in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus will come back. And you know, when you, when you look at later writings in the Bible, 
particularly the book of Revelation, a few others, you will realize that the image that the Bible writers give for that moment when Jesus comes back is what? It's marriage. It's marriage. Jesus will come back. He will bring his bride, the church, and she, that is us, because of his work for them on, his, on our behalf, through the cross, she, you, that is, will be made beautiful in his sight. You will be made spotless in his sight. You will appear to him as you will be radiant, dressed in white, much like a bride as she walks down the aisle to meet her husband. That will be us one day. You will be made completely pure, it says, because of his blood. When he became naked and vulnerable and went to the cross. That stuff cleans you up. Radiance. This, says the Bible, is what sex and marriage point to. It is this moment of rapture, right? This moment of delight and joy and ecstasy. When we get to be with Jesus and he comes again. And we'll be presented to him spotless and blameless. No more pain, no more mess, no more sorrow, no more hurt. It's gone. Instead, you will stand before him resplendent, gorgeous, completely whole. That's how he will see you. So, when you're listening to this, whether you're married or not, whether you're sexually active or not, it doesn't ultimately matter in God's eyes. It doesn't define you. Because this is what ultimately defines you. Being united to Jesus, his bride. Three implications and then we're done. I realize that this type of message and this type of teaching from Jesus stokes up much emotion, much experience perhaps, much many questions. Um, and so uh, this sermon is never going to touch on all of your answers. But let me just give three implications that you know, we, we can take forward together as a community. First implication is this. If you've either been hurt by sex or you've used sex to hurt other people, if you've sinned against someone or you've been sinned against, or maybe a combination of all that, forgiveness and restoration is yours in and through Jesus. Forgiveness and restoration is yours in and through Jesus. He took your sin to the grave. on his shoulders, in your place, and he left them there. And he rose in resurrection power, and he sent his Holy Spirit to us. And so when you trust in Jesus, your sin is down in the grave. He's dealt with that. And his resurrection power is yours. He wants to share that with you. That's why he sends you the Holy Spirit. All this is yours through the empty hands of faith, receiving the gift from Jesus, who is Jesus himself.
first implication. Second implication is this. Divorce is permissible, but it's not always essential. Let me explain. Um, we, we can't really cover it in much depth, but in 11 and 12, Jesus says, divorce is permissible in limited circumstances. Okay? And it's always intended to minimize destruction. It's not ideal. It's never ideal. It's intended to minimize fallout, minimize hurts, rather than keep going in some terrible marriage or terrible situation. But... Even though it's permissible, it is not always essential. At times it is, very sadly. But it's not always. Because Jesus gives us the grace and the power not only to receive forgiveness and receive restoration, but to extend forgiveness and extend restoration. Right? Forgiven people forgive people. It is possible for marriages to be saved and salvaged by the grace of God. And it's a beautiful thing when it does happen. It's not easy. It's not easy. But it is a powerful demonstration of the gospel. When forgiveness is given and received. When love and trust is rebuilt. And if that's you or if you've been affected in, in this or any way like this, I would, I would love to help you walk through that somehow or other. Um, those of us in the church, we, we want to walk through this together if this is something um, that you just like to talk through and, and think through. So divorce is permissible. It's not always essential. Thirdly and finally, third implication is this, and then we're done. Whether you are married or single, divorced, bereaved, in a relationship or not in a relationship, young or old, church, is the place of deep relationship. Uh, as we were mentioning earlier, this is the place where we say grace. Isn't it amazing? Amazing grace. We, we Asian church and, and many churches like us are built because we believe in the goodness of grace. Jesus' unmerited favor, his forgiveness, his love for messed up people like us and me. And so we want this church to be a place of deep relationship where we can work together, live together, enjoy God's love, bless each other, you know, uh, build each other up in our marriages and our, our, our history and our failures and, and, and cover all that in love and grace and point one another to Jesus. That's what we love and desire this church to be more and more like as we go forward. So if you're not a part of a church family or if you're just sort of looking in from the outside, we would love you uh, to, to walk with us, to journey with us and enter into this thing called church. Let's stand together. I just want to um, pray and, and respond to some of these things that, that um, we've been thinking about.